Behind the Bite podcast is part of a network of podcasts that are good for the world. Check out podcasts like the Full of Shit podcast, After the First Marriage podcast, and Eating Recovery Academy over at practiceofthepractice.com backslash network. Welcome to Behind the Bite podcast. This podcast is about the real life struggles women face with food, body image, and weight. We're here to help heal, inspire, and create better, healthier lives. Welcome. Well, hello, everyone. You know, if any of you out there have ever been frustrated with trying to access or get coverage for mental health care, I'm sure you're not alone. And more specifically, if you've ever tried to get either one of those for eating disorders, I can only imagine the hurdles you face. You know, I would love nothing more than to see the day when mental health illnesses are viewed and covered the exact same as any other illnesses. But until then, thankfully, there are organizations that are out there trying to do something about all of this. And I'm really excited to have someone here today from one of those organizations to talk more about what they do and discuss more about barriers to treatment. Rebecca Ayer is the CEO of Project HEAL, the leading national nonprofit focused on equitable access to eating disorder support. Project HEAL offers direct services to people who are unable to access treatment, providing free treatment, assessments, cash assistance, insurance navigation support, and community education. Rebecca is a licensed mental health therapist who has been treating individuals with eating disorders for over a decade, and she's a vocal advocate at the intersection of eating disorders and social justice. All right, Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm happy you're here. Um, There's so much to get into, and, um, you know, I haven't had anybody on here really to get into the nuts and bolts of Project Heal, so... You know, for the audience, for me even to to know more, can you tell us about Project Heal, like how it got started and how you started to get involved in it? Absolutely. So Project Heal is a national nonprofit, and we're the only national nonprofit that's focused on equitable access to care. We were founded in gosh, 2008 um, by two teenagers who actually met in treatment, Christina Safran and Leanna Rosenman. And they essentially saw how many people's insurance prematurely cut off and how many people couldn't even get in uh, because it was too expensive or their insurance didn't cover it. And so when they were 15 years old, they decided to start Project Heal to raise money to help people pay for treatment. And I think what's really fascinating and and, um, beautiful about that story is that a lot of teenagers in recovery have big hearts and they really want to pay it forward and they care a lot about the recovery community. Um, And then those passion projects fade away as they you know, graduate from high school and go to college or need to get jobs. Right. And I think what's really special is that project heal is still here 14, 15 years later. And, um, we really were kind of a back burner, I think, passion project for these two brilliant teenagers for a number of years while they did go to high school and college and um, focus on their own healing. Certainly did some really cool things during those years, but it really wasn't until they graduated from college that um, they made a decision like, do we keep going or do we call it a day. And so they doubled down and they really took it seriously and started hiring staff and Christina became full-time CEO. And so, um, poured all of her blood, sweat, and tears into making this a reality and project heal became one of the leading eating disorder nonprofits in the country. Um, and so in 2019, when Christina stepped aside, um, she's now on our board of directors, but she left project heal the nonprofit space to start equip, which is, um, a, a for-profit, um, eating disorder program that's offering virtual um, bundled FBT care. And it's really, really remarkable. And I think she saw that as a really incredible way to accomplish kind of her same heart for Project Heal, which is to make sure people can access care. Um, But Project Heal still needed to exist, but it was also the beginning of the pandemic. And, you know, anytime a founder leaves a nonprofit, there's a crisis of identity, like, Mm. you know, it's kind of built around the shiny founder and everybody loves a founder CEO of a nonprofit because it's so personal. Um, 
And so I think everything was really up in the air. Like I said, it was the beginning of the pandemic and um, I was the program director of, of our treatment access programs at the time. And I was approached to step into the CEO role and I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do this. Um, and it was a really interesting moment in time and, you know, not just, you know, a month and a half later, George Floyd was murdered and the whole eating disorder community started reckoning with some of the ways in which it's not equitable. Um, and so our role as a treatment access focused nonprofit became really clear that we needed to do much, much, much better around talking about the systemic barriers to eating disorder care, in addition to the financial and healthcare barriers that we had been talking about for a really long time. So we dug into who is not accessing care? Um, are there communities that are disproportionately affected by these barriers? And lo and behold, absolutely, there were. Um, and so really in the last two and a half years, since I've been CEO, we've focused on all of the ways that systemic barriers compound those very pervasive financial and healthcare uh, barriers and um, focused on, I think, going above and beyond and out of our way and centering people who have long been excluded or just absent from the eating disorder community. Um, and it's been really transformative for Project Heal. For me, um, it's it's a very interesting space. I, I, I said this, you know, while we were getting set up for the call, but it's, you know, the eating disorder field is one of the most inequitable um, spaces in all of healthcare. Um, and the disparities are really profound. And you know, the homogeneity of the eating disorder field is so far off from the actual statistics of who has eating disorders that there's sort of no justification for the stereotype that eating disorders are like a thin, rich, white girl problem, right? Those are those are not the only people affected by eating disorders. So why are they so often the only ones in treatment, the only ones who end up healing and then joining the eating disorder community and then joining the eating disorder field as providers, right? And it's this cyclical problem that perpetuates itself as long as access to care is limited and biased um, and cost prohibitive and under undercovered by insurance, then it's going to be only like the privileged few who can actually receive treatment that they need in order to heal. Um, and so we look around and go, you know, why are there only 12 black dietitians that treat eating disorders in the entire country? Uh, like what's that <laughs> 12 human beings? Uh, and it, it's just, it's, there's so many wild statistics about this, but, uh, it's been, you know, a huge privilege and challenge for me as a cis white lady, uh, to tackle, I think a lot of those disparities and make sure that project Hill's representative of the entire eating disorder field, um, on our staff and on our board and making sure that we're centering those, those communities that need the most resources and kind of thinking about it as equity and not, not just equality, but like actually disproportionately and prioritize it disproportionately prioritizing those, those folks who are most likely to have, um, multiple barriers to care. Um, we certainly do serve all kinds of folks. Everyone we serve is low income, um, and has insurance barriers, but there's certainly a lot of ways in which either body size or disability or race or gender or, um, sexuality or identity essentially have, provided additional barriers on top of all of those other barriers. And so, um, I really love what I do. It's a huge privilege and honor to be able to like lead this organization during this particular season in history. And we've certainly pivoted a lot, but we're also doing so much better than we ever had in terms of actually delivering treatment access to folks. Um, and, I know I've been going on for a long time, but how I actually got into this eating, this, this into project heal in the first place is that I'm an eating disorder therapist and I've worked in treatment centers and in private practice. And I've, I've worked in admissions at treatment centers. I know how many people get turned away because they have Medicaid, how many people get turned away because I know we can't get insurance authorization because they're not underweight. How many people, um, get misgendered in treatment, how many people, um, essentially walk into a treatment space that's 
primarily designed for folks with anorexia and assumes body image disturbance and all of these things that are not necessarily a core part of everyone's eating disorder. So, um, I, I care a lot about eating disorder treatment and, and access to it. And so I can't believe how lucky I am, I think, to get to do this work at this time in my history. I think ultimately I'll end up being just going back and being an eating disorder therapist and a trauma therapist. Like I'm a clinician at heart. Um, I'm not, I'm not a nonprofit executive in my blood. (laughs) Um, but I really love this specific organization and I just get to work with some of the most amazing human beings, um, and do work that I feel really matters and, and gives my life a lot of meaning. And so I feel really lucky. Well, and it sounds like the people you serve are very lucky too, because you have such a, a, you know, history and background. You've seen the other side of things when people aren't able to get care. And, you know, that's the part that I would love to talk about a little bit more. You talked about all these barriers to care. And I think maybe people listening are going, well, you know, if they don't have those barriers, they might not understand what they are. Certainly if some people are listening, they're going, yes, 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 I get it. Um, but maybe we could delve into some of those a little bit because I think that we don't talk about them enough. Um, and certainly myself as a clinician, you know, I, I see them as well. I'm very frustrating with insurance, just mental health in general. Let's not even get into eating disorders. You know, insurance for the most part doesn't cover mental health uh, treatment. Um, it's very frustrating as a clinician for that uh, end. And I don't think mental health is seen, uh, treatment is seen as necessary or um, even as respected as, you know, other areas of medicine or or other areas of health. And so let's get into what happens with eating disorders that you've seen because you've, you know, you've been in clinics, you've been in uh, treatment centers and you've tried to get authorizations for treatment. So what have you seen? What's, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think of the, the barriers to care in a couple of different categories and, you know, Project Hill's mission specifically names systemic healthcare and financial. Um, and so I'm happy to dive into what some of those are. I, I want to just add that there are a lot of other barriers that Project Hill, being a relatively small and underfunded nonprofit can't necessarily get into. Um, but I think of, I'm trying to pull up this list. So we have, um, I think an understanding of systemic, there's also cultural barriers to care, like social stigma, the glorification of thinness, um, a lot of representation issues in the media, but there's also qualitative, um, which I know you probably understand a lot of as a clinician, like how few people are getting trained to treat eating disorders, how limited kind of quality control is for eating disorder care, how, you know, ununified the eating disorder field is in general and like what standards of care is, what treatment protocols are for different diagnoses, mm-hmm. different genders, different ages, et cetera. I think there's also logistical, right? Geographic barriers. There's no treatment center anywhere near me. There's no specialist anywhere near me. I live in a rural area. I can't physically get there. Um, I don't have the technology to do telehealth, you know, all of those sort of logistical, um, or I can't get away from my pets, or I can't get away from my kids, or I can't get away from my job. I mean, there's there's a lot of things that stand in the way logistically. The thing that most people talk about is the personal, and I just want to name that, right? There's internal barriers. We think about resistance and shame and denial a lot as clinicians, because they're still there when a person is in treatment. They're always working through some kind of ambivalence, some kind of, um, you know, lack of understanding about their own eating disorder or about eating disorders in general. And they're kind of, um, oftentimes thriving in isolation and hidden and not articulated, right? They're, they're needing to be observed or they're behavioral. I think a lot about um, how many people out of the 30 million folks who will be diagnosed with an eating disorder in their lifetime, if 24 million of those are never getting care, a good chunk of those are never getting care because they're not acknowledging they have an issue. They're not willing to reach out for care. They don't think it's serious enough that, you know, they would never tell anyone about it. And so 
those are not necessarily folks whose barriers we're helping overcome. I mean, my, my mom was one of those people who never got eating disorder treatment, um, and struggled for decades. And, um, and it's not because she didn't have the money or the insurance or anything else. It's because she simply didn't want to go to treatment. Um, and so she never healed the barriers that project heal is focused on are the systemic healthcare and financial. And so healthcare is a little bit easier to understand insurance doesn't cover every level of care. Um, insurance is not in network with every single treatment center. Most healthcare kind of plans don't delineate eating disorder specialists on their provider finder, you know, mm-hmm. tools on their websites. A lot of eating disorder specialists are not in network with insurance because low reimbursement rates or, you know, administrative overhead is just too onerous. And frankly, they can keep their practices full with um, cash clients because there's so many people with eating disorders. And so the like cost benefit analysis of taking insurance sometimes just doesn't rise to that level. But what that means is that people who can't pay out of pocket between, you know, 50 and $200 a session are not getting access to those outpatient providers. Um, There's also some issues with the medical necessity, which I put in quotes, um, that is a really core part of insurance authorization. Um, And treatment providers are are beholden to this very nebulous, ill-defined idea of medical necessity. We know that if a person is medically underweight, has significant abnormal labs, or has, you know, an abnormal EKG, those things will help a person get authorized. And what's really wild about that is that eating disorders are a psychiatric condition in the DSM. They're a mental health condition that have in many cases, medical symptoms and, and medical implications. Um, but to have medical criteria, a requirement for a mental health condition is totally unique to eating disorders, right? You don't have to be able to show in your lab work that you're depressed. You're just believed (laughs) and you get care. You don't have to be, you know, in liver failure in order to get alcohol treatment. You just have to use alcohol. (laughs) Right. So, you know, the fact that this mental illness, which should be measured by behaviors, thoughts, and impact on quality of life is being measured only by medical necessity, which is not universally defined by these insurance companies, nor transparently communicated. It's just a blanket, kind of an umbrella statement that gets used as a justification for unfair insurance denials. That's troubling and should trouble all of us. Um, And it's a huge Mm -hmm. loophole that insurances utilize in order to, you know, avoid paying for what is understandably very expensive treatment. Um, so those are healthcare barriers. I know that we all have experienced those. Um, and as long as pri- even private insurance so inadequately covers and uh, eating disorder treatment, um, you know, we're that much further behind with Medicare and Medicaid, which basically means that anyone who is poor, old, or disabled is like off. <laughs> they either have to be super, super, super high acuity, even then they can only get into inpatient, which is very unlikely to have, you know, high quality eating disorder care, or they're an outpatient again within network providers who may or may not be any good. I don't know. They're like, right. There's just not enough of them. And there's not, there's not a large network. I mean, we're talking about a handful, you know, a couple dozen in the country, uh, that take those government funded insurances. So, um, and yeah, if you're struggling with a disability or you're over 65 or you're low income, you're probably not going to have all the resources it takes to do all of the work to navigate finding these providers. Cause it's really, really hard. Even if you have money and time and, you know, clarity of mind and all of those things and a like super high functioning health. <laughs> so it's just, it's, it's, it's already hard and add on to that. Maybe even, you know, immigration status or a like, um, lack of insurance altogether or a language barrier. I mean, good luck. Right. So add on to that, a family who doesn't support you, a family that doesn't believe you, uh, you know, um, a partner who doesn't believe you or support you. I mean, poof, 
Um, those things are really hard. Financial, I mean, eating disorders cost a lot of money to treat, right? They're just expensive to treat. Like I mentioned, the outpatient costs are high. Um, I mean, I'm a CEO, I pay $175 out of pocket for my therapy sessions and it hurts every time, you know what I mean? And that's just one provider and eating disorder, you know, um, patient might need a therapist, a dietitian, a psychiatrist, a primary care provider, and who knows, right? Maybe like a rheumatologist, maybe a, a GI doc, right? Like there's so many different kinds of things that a person may need an outpatient, um, and then, you know, with the higher levels of care, maybe it's even, you're lucky enough to have it covered by your insurance. Most of the time you have a few thousand dollars of a deductible. Um, and so you're still paying thousands of dollars out of pocket. And if your insurance cuts you off, maybe you'll dig into your savings. I mean, I've seen families take out second mortgages, huge loans, rack up tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt because their child is sick and they are going to do whatever that it takes to get their child care it's, you know, puts people in a lifetime of debt in many cases. And even the privilege of having access to a credit line to get, go into debt is a, is a privilege, right? Not everybody can borrow money. Um, not everybody has a credit card with more than, you know, a thousand dollar limit. Not everybody has a, a network that they could raise money through a GoFundMe or um, borrow money from a parent or do you know what I'm saying? All of oh, these yeah. things are like totally rare. And so, you know, yes, ideally insurance covers and, you know, your eating disorder treatment, but even in those cases, there's just so many tertiary costs, right? Like how do you pay your rent? If you're taking a leave off of work, how do you pay for your childcare while you're in PHP during the day? How do you, um, you know, cover your flight? Like, how do you pay for your family to live nearby while your kid is in PHP out of state? Cause there's no in-state place. I mean, this is like expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, those are, I think, really, really tricky things to overcome. And again, really limit, you know, the viability of, of getting eating disorder care for many people. And lastly, systemic, I mean, this is really uh, a lot of what I've talked about before, but I think um, it's really important to note that, it's very well documented and Project Hill is in the middle of publishing a report based on some research we've conducted that there are barriers in place with eating disorder treatment providers and treatment centers and insurance companies and just in our cultural imagination around who has an eating disorder. And so um, when you are a transgender person, when you're a person of color, when you are a higher weight individual, when you're a disabled person or a neurodivergent person, if you have these things that sort of fall outside of, or if maybe even you're just older than 24, right? If you're just like an older adult, maybe you're in your fifties, right? All these things kind of make you a quote unquote, non-traditional eating disorder patient, or just like sort of outside of that stereotype of who is most likely to be an eating disorder treatment. And I mean, this is just the the truth. Anyone who's been to a treatment center looks around and it's like, most of these people look like each other. (laughs) Um, And most of the providers look like each other. And so if you are kind of outside of that stereotype, um, you're going to feel really other than the whole time. You may have to sleep in a, in a room with someone who's not your gender because you're trans, but your, you know, papers haven't been documented and may get misgendered the whole time you're there. You may like be, you know, Muslim and not be able to eat the food that is being served by the treatment center. You may have, um, a bed or chairs at the facility that physically do not hold your body, right? You may have, um, you know, expectations of your treatment plan that just simply do not work for you and your neurodivergence, or, you know, you may have to climb stairs to get to the treatment center, but you, you, you have a disability, all these ways in which our healthcare system and our society at large is just designed for kind of a a norm, which I again, put in quotes, that is simply not true. (laughs) It's, it's like, there is no universal experience of having a body and there is no universal eating disorder experience. And the, and the, the treatment landscape has really designed a standardized kind of one size fits all. I mean, there's a lot of claims of individualization of treatment, which I love and hope is hope is happening. Um, but you know, a milieu is like very standardized. We have this schedule, we have these meals, 
we have this group format, we have this frequency of sessions, we have this language we use, we have this furniture that we have, we have this medical equipment. And it's like, it doesn't account for the actual kind of um, diversity and breadth and, you know, kaleidoscope of, of the eating disorder community. And so a lot of people who can walk into those spaces and know it wasn't designed for them don't feel safe right away, which is not conducive to their healing. Um, it's another space in which they feel othered or even pathologized for their difference. And so those are the things that I think a lot about when we're talking about systemic barriers. And so when you lay them all out, I mean, we have a running list at Project Heal that we're working with of like 150 barriers to care. Um, so it's not, it's not easy. And, and all of this amounts to what I said before, which is like, you know, anywhere from 10 to 20% of people with eating disorders are able to access care and the other 80, 90% are not accessing it. And I think we really need to ask ourselves why, especially when this illness is one of the most fatal mental illnesses, um, claiming at least one life every 52 minutes, like let's, figure out how to make sure that none of those deaths are preventable, uh, through access to care. Wow. That's a big list. But as you were talking, my head was spinning, just going, yes, yes, yes. Like there's so many things and, you know, I can see just with some of the ones you were talking about in terms of, you know, even just the family, um, the burden it would put on the family. You know, I've heard this certainly from my patients, like the shame and the guilt that alone would, you know, you know, excuse my word, but like weigh on them, right? Like the, the stress mm-hmm. of that and, and that's where they would be like, no, I'm not going to go in because I feel too guilty. It would burden me too much emotionally to go in. I can't. And so it was, even if, even if the family were willing to do it, they, you know, someone taking on all that guilt or responsibility, sometimes it's too much. Um, so it's, it's, it's so sad for me to hear all of these levels. And um, I think you're right. The criteria, you know, I hear so often how, I don't know how often you hear this, but I hear all the time, well, they don't look like they have an eating disorder or even the patient themselves. Well, I don't look like I have one. Mm-hmm. I, no one's going to believe me. That right there is so telling. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they know they're struggling on some level, but they're like, but no, you know, they don't want to go into a group. I'll say, you know, why don't you come into a group? No, because I'm not going to look like I have, I'm sick enough. I get that term sick enough, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the huge costs of this stereotype and why we have to be talking about it because it's not, it's not just that we're misinformed. It's that it's totally gaslighting and invalidating individuals who a hundred percent have eating disorders and need access to care because they have that stereotype too. Mm -hmm. And as long as it has any space in our, you know, cultural conversation, let alone, you know, medical, um, and clinical conversations, we're going to have a bunch of people whose mental illness is telling them that it's not that serious. And then everyone around them kind of agreeing with them, (laughs) you know, if your insurance literally denies you based on medical necessity and your mom is trying to put you on a diet and, you know, nobody in the facility looks like you, I mean, what else are you supposed to think? Well, right. This going back to medical necessity too. Like I can't, I cannot remember the last time it's probably been about a year and a half that I've had one patient come back with a lab that had one abnormality on it. And I know they're very, very sick. It is so rare to get a lab that has anything show abnormal. Even if somebody is like on the brink of death, it is just so rare. And I've talked to colleagues about this, you know, because it gives us false sense of I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the scary part to me too, is oh gosh, you know, why I always question that. Why is that? You know, this person is so sick and, not eating enough and, or, you know, just something's got to be off in their system, but why is this showing stable? What's going on? Right. So, yeah. And it's like, you know, especially when you've had this, an illness for a really long time. And I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, given that you're a doctor, it's like your body can adjust to a lot. Our bodies are really resilient. You know, I, I think about, 
yeah, how many people who I've, who I've seen, who I'm hearing their, how restrictive they are, how many times they're using these behaviors in a day, how long they've been using it. And I'm just literally like looking at them going like, if I did that even for three days, I would be in a coma. You know what I mean? But they have basically acclimated over time and their body has done all of, you know, who knows what to protect them, whether it's like, you know, growing Lanugo or shutting down reproductive organs or right. Diminished cognitive functioning. Like, you know, the body is trying always to keep its organs running. Mm -hmm. Right. Especially it's essential organs. And so, you know, those whose bodies are more resilient shouldn't suffer because their bodies are able to survive in, you know, unthinkable circumstances. And then there are other folks who are so medically fragile, who, you know, seem to be like, even in a treatment setting, I'm watching them eat adequately. I know they haven't used these behaviors and like, they're just still have these abnormal labs. And it's like, I just think this isn't a good metric. I think it's something, it's not a good, it's important to measure. It's a really bad determining factor. It should not be a requirement. Um, because it's too inconsistent. No, I totally agree with you. I mean, we could get into the medical field. (laughs) I know you and I were talking a little bit before we recorded, just, I mean, even that alone, the messages uh, from medical doctors and the criteria, when you just go for a a checkup or something, um, (sighs) you know, this perpetuates so many ideas about body size and, and, health and all sorts of things that I think, like you said, contributes to people's ideas about what, when I ask people, like, what do you consider healthy? Right. And they just go to like labs and they go to like weight and they go to like all these criteria that like you're avoiding or like you're ignoring all these other areas of health, you know, like your emotional well-being and you're like, how are you doing on all these other areas of your life? Right. But I think when you go to the doctors, you know, maybe you could touch base with me on this too, but like, you know, the BMI needs to go away. Oh Um, yeah. The discussions on, you know, um, healthy, quote unquote, healthy versus quote unquote, unhealthy foods. And um, the people doling out the information on what that even is. And this focus on, you know, this diet culture we're in. And I mean, Mm -hmm. you go on the internet and it's just scary toxic world out there, but I don't know. What what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I I think weight is just usually a kind of an unnecessary measure to take in a doctor's appointment. I mean, weight fluctuations. Yes. But I mean, I've, I've experienced (laughs) so much unnecessary weighing throughout my life and so much unnecessary commentary about my weight, uh, And what's really interesting to me, and I always use this as sort of an inverse example is I'm, I'm a genetically thin person. I've always been thin. Um, and for that reason, I've always been presumed to be healthy by everybody. (laughs) Meanwhile, I have had, you know, like terrible anxiety. I've had, um, poor sleep, really poor hydration for so long. Um, you know, I smoked cigarettes for years, right? I've had periods of like drinking alcohol as like a primary kind of coping thing. I wouldn't say reached the threshold of addiction, but like absolutely, you know, over the recommended amount for alcohol intake in terms of frequency. But because I was thin, everybody's like, but I'm not too thin, right? It's just like, oh, just total blanket, you're fine. Um, and so to me, that's such a like helpful inverse of someone who then is in a higher weight body or, um, you know, has other health considerations that are absolutely just like my health was assumed based on my appearance. I feel like a lot of folks health is assumed based on their appearance and obviously to much greater detriment, right? Like the world is totally set up for me as a thin person. And so I don't, I don't experience any hardship about my body size, which is such a huge privilege. But when you're, when you're, you know, large or in a higher weight body, it's like, 
the world is not designed for you. You're pathologized by everyone you see. You're judged when you're at the re- a restaurant based on what you order. You're judged at the gym, whether, you know, people are cheering you on or telling you to go home. You know what I mean? Like all of these assumptions that are made and to have those same assumptions happening at the doctor's office uh, is really, really scary. And the doctor prescribing a diet, this is like one of my <laughs> absolute, um, I just can't handle this. So many doctors are prescribing uh, basically eating disorder behaviors, right? Weight loss uh, measures without evaluating any of the other levers, any of the other, like, what is your intake? What is your relationship with alcohol? What is your relationship with exercise? How is your sleep, right? What, how's your hydration? What is your mental health status? What is your historical weight? What was your growth chart as a child, right? Like there's so many things to ask before you jump to the prescription of a diet, which importantly is 97% ineffective. Imagine if you had a a medicine that was only 3% likely to work and would increase your chances of developing a fatal illness by 50%. And you prescribed it without asking any other questions. That's what the medical field is doing. (laughs) I love that you said it like that. (laughs) Right? It's outrageous. Like that, right? You know, exactly. It's so dangerous. It should be illegal. I agree with you. A hundred percent. I've said that so many times. Diet should be illegal. People never. You know, and if, if the, you know, the idea of a diet, I want to be clear, we're talking about body change behaviors, right? Like size reduction strategies. I'm not talking about, oh, I get inflammation when I eat, you know, broccoli. So I need to change my diet. Cool. Work with a dietitian to figure out a way to get whatever vitamins are in broccoli because you can't have it because it makes you constipated. I don't care, right? It's about changes in input and output that are aimed at the you know ultimate health goal of weight loss that are just like so destructive and never and almost never actually take you know i know you understand this i'm just saying this to whoever's listening where it's just like right we're not saying that there you know isn't a way in which your food can be helpful in your sense of feeling in your body you know yeah if intuitive eating is not a thing that you have access to, then great. Work with a dietitian on flexibility, di- you know, variety, adequacy, all those things. Cool. Think about what you're eating. Great. I love that for you. But to to think about it to the point of preoccupation for a goal of changing your body will always be bad for you. Yes, and you know, it's interesting because there's still that connection. And I will repeat this on so many podcasts. Sorry, but for anyone who's listened before, I apologize, but it has to be said over and over because I was even listening to another podcast the other day and they had a a sponsor for Weight Watchers and it just made me cringe that, you know, this person was talking about, I had to go and for my health, I had to lose weight and it helped me lose weight for my health. I mean, it was said so many times over and over. And so then I brought in my friend and told them, you know, for your health, you need to lose weight too. You can go there and get healthy there. And I was like, why are they equating health and weight loss? This is making me sick, but it's perpetuated over and over and over health and weight to your point, right? That you can't look at somebody and know if their physical well-being um, has any illnesses or diseases or you don't know what's going on, right? So health and weight are not correlated and yet our society perpetuates that. So people feel the pressure, like my doctor told me I need to lose weight to be healthy and I'll ask like, why? <laughs> what is that going to quote unquote fix? What's happening? I know. Well, and interestingly, like science is fairly clear that the actually problematic thing is dramatic weight fluctuations and rapid weight fluctuations, right? And so it's actually, if you happen to temporarily succeed at this diet, you're actually 
less healthy. <laughs> um, and I just think about that so much where I just, I'm like, um, what would it be like to think much more about weight change, right? To me, if you gain, you know, X number of pounds in a very short period of time, definitely think about that. You know, what's going on? If it's not correlated to a medication change or a pregnancy or like, you know, like a, like a t- typical, I mean, gradual weight fluctuations over time, a hundred percent, they're universal, they're unavoidable. You know, there's nothing that anyone, like we should expect them. I'm talking about like dramatic weight fluctuations in either direction. And so what's really troubling to me is that, you know, someone who starts at X number of weight and loses a dramatic amount of weight really quickly might still technically be seen as high weight, right? Might still not be underweight, but they could be just as sick or more sick than someone who's extremely thin and who might get a ton of attention for that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's actually the weight loss that is so damaging. And then again, because so many diets result in weight gain, it's those that yo-yo dieting that's resulting in so many of the health complications that are attributed to being um, higher weight. It's like, no, it's the diet you prescribed that's causing the rapid weight fluctuations that are leading to the symptoms that you're then going to try to fix with another diet prescription. And all the while, this person is going to feel like they keep failing at these diets rather than realizing that they're being prescribed a toxin. (laughs) Right. And so me as the, you know, psychologist is also thinking of the psychological damage that, oh, that that toll takes on somebody that I'm not good enough. I'm a failure. I need to try harder. The shame, the embarrassment of if they did, you know, lose and quote unquote become successful and then they gained it back. Like, what does that mean? And, you know, it's, it's just a nightmare. It's, it's, it takes such a toll on the body, um, emotionally, physically. And so anyone listening, please, you know, hear what we're saying, just stay clear of diets. They're awful, awful, um, Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know there's the pressure out there and it seems like they're like the Holy grail to give you all this, <laughs> whatever you're searching for, but they're really, they're just going to bring you down a road to hell. In my opinion, I've been there, yeah. done that. It's awful. Yeah. And I, I, I feel really strongly that doctors are the main audience that has got to change their mind about this because they're have, they have the most power they're perceived I think by many as trustworthy and should be, you know, entrusted with a person's well-being and committed to not doing any harm. And so that is just scary. The, the, the diet industry, right. All the ads you see, all of the magazines that are selling before and after photos, just like, know that you are, they're making a lot of money off of you and that cycle, right. Of shame. And I need to do better. And I have to try again. And all of those things, like that is a beautiful business model to give people a completely unattainable ideal that they will spend all of their time and money being preoccupied with, right? Like that is, you know, I get that. I I think it's disgusting. Like yeah. I would love to burn all of those buildings down. Like I, I can't handle it. Right. It's the doctors where I'm just like, <sighs> come on. You just like do better, read the research. What are you, what are you up to? It's, it's really where you, you realize that doctors are there are people, um, who have their own bodies and their own relationship to body image and their own history of dieting or family members, right? Like this, they're, they're being really influenced by a cultural idea and not the actual medicine because, I think doctors who are paying attention should notice (laughs) not only how ineffective it is, but how damaging it is. Um, And that's, that's where I'm just like, you know, if you're not making billions of dollars and you're not evil, like, could you, could you cut it out? That'd be nice. Yeah. And you know, just, you know, now I'm in my private practice and doing this, but um, you know, I worked at a hospital for 15 years and I cannot, you the frustration I had there was not one primary care doctor that 
was willing to really partner with me and um, be like the eating disorder person doctor that I could go to to send my patients. It just wasn't, they didn't know enough about eating disorders. And I guess they were, they didn't feel comfortable because they didn't know anything about them. And so that scared me out of this whole hospital full of doctors and not one I could find that was knowledgeable enough to work with me. And I was like, wow, this is really eye-opening. Mm-hmm. I actually say that a lot where I feel like eating disorders have like fallen into the gap between medical and, and psychological where it's like so many medical doctors, like you just described are like, that's too complicated. Psych- you know, psychiatric, I'm not that I can't handle that. I don't know how to handle it. And then a lot of mental health professionals are also like, that's too medically complicated. I don't Mm -hmm. want to touch it with a 10 foot pole, right? Like liability issues alone. I think that for a lot of mental health, it's too medical for a lot of medical, it's too mental health and they're not talking to each other and it's, it's costing people their lives. Um, and it's not okay. I think we need to have, I wish I could, I wish I had more money and power and, uh, agency and audience. So I could just bring all of these people together in a stadium and go, turn to your neighbor, talk to them. <laughs> you know, I mean, and this is another cost of the stereotype and I, I know we're running out of time, but it's like most eating disorders are not that medically severe. Most like the majority are you know, mild to moderate, they're happening in people's daily lives. They're persisting for a really long time. They're impacting their quality of life, but they're not probably about to drop dead any second. Like it doesn't have to be this huge medical mystery. And for the doctors who are trying to to figure out how to bring eating disorder um, competency into their practice, it's like, sit, sit down and listen just for like a little while. It's not actually that complicated necessarily it's it it is complicated and it just doesn't have to be the boogeyman that you won't touch because it's they're in your they're in your patient pool like these folks are there and you're just Mm -hmm. choosing not to learn about how to help um and how to prevent and you know that's just unacceptable i Yes, because whether people ask the right questions or want to acknowledge what's really going on, you're absolutely correct. They're seeing patients who are struggling with eating disorders and need help and they have no idea. Yeah. Or conversely, because of the way uh, these biases are are occurring in the medical field, people aren't coming in for treatment. Mm -hmm. They don't want to deal with the biases and all of that. So it's it's causing problems the other way too. People just don't want to go in. So, and even if they're like, I don't want to be an eating disorder specialist. I don't want to have this as a primary focus, just be eating disorder informed. So you could stop telling people to lose weight because it's, (laughs) you know, like just, if you're going to be trauma informed, if you're going to be, you know, just knowing that it's there so you can do less harm. That's really the main thing I'm asking because it'd be really awesome to have fewer people go into eating disorder treatment and and say, this all started when my doctor said X. That'd be really helpful. At the very least, if they're going to be predisposed and maybe they'll develop an eating disorder anyway, maybe you could not be the one who triggered its onset through your lack of information. That'd be really helpful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The amount of stories I've heard, even experienced myself, I'm sure we could mm-hmm. do a whole de- other podcast just focused on things that got triggered in certain offices by different providers. So, yeah. Yeah. But I'm glad we're on the same page with that. I mean, we could, we could probably talk for hours on so yeah. many different aspects of things, but I'm so grateful you're doing the work you're doing and providing the help to people that really need it. Um, so, you know, if somebody is listening and, or they know somebody who really could use your services, how can they get in touch with Project Heal? How can they um, seek the resources you have? Like, 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're really active on Instagram. So, you know, follow us there if you just want to learn more or stay kind of up to date on different program offerings. But the best way to actually get help is to apply for support at our website. So our website is theprojectheal.org with a T-H-E at the beginning. Um, and yeah, apply for support. We have, we can get people into treatment for free. We can do free diagnosis and harm reduction based, um, treatment recommendations. We can, um, we provide cash assistance, um, which covers those tertiary costs I mentioned earlier. We have an insurance navigation program that helps people understand their rights, that helps people um, get insurance that will cover it, that helps people file appeals or get single case agreements. So there's help um, available around a lot of these barriers. And certainly if you're having a difficult time getting into care, um, you know, don't give up before, before you try Project Heal. Um, we do everything we can to say yes to as many people as possible with some resources and your life is worth trying to save. Um, and I know that it is really, really hard to have an eating disorder and to feel motivated enough to jump through all of these hoops. And I, I want to acknowledge that and, um, you know, do it for future you, um, who deserves some freedom from this thing. And, and, um, you know, I really, really hope that we can create a world where eating disorders are not a life sentence or a death sentence, but are something that is easily treatable, affordably treated, um, and something that can be, you know, that something that happens and is kind of easily handled early on, um, in a supportive environment. So that's my goal. And in the meantime, get the care that you need. Love the goal at everything you're doing. Thank you so much. You know, as a provider myself, I just thank you. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. More people can get help and treatment. It's the better. So, um, and then is there anything coming up at Project Heal you want to mention for anybody who might want to, maybe they don't need treatment, but they want to donate or help your you know, yeah, we, we have our annual heel week, um, the week of October 2nd. Um, but we, you know, are entirely donations based. We don't have any kind of organic revenue. And so we really rely on the generosity of people who understand what we're doing, you know, um, corporate partnerships, foundations, and peer to peer fundraising. So maybe raise money for project heal on your birthday or for the holidays, or, you know, um, if this is an issue that's close to your heart, we need all the help that we can get. Um, you know, raising money for equitable access to eating disorder treatment is not, you know, the most glamorous, easy to understand thing. Um, and so if this is something that you get, it would mean a lot, um, to, have the resources we need to say yes to every single person who comes to us. Well, Rebecca, thank you again so much. Everyone, uh, if you need, you know, help and treatment, head on over uh, to the project deal. And thank you again so, so much. Thanks, Christina. This is really great. This podcast is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information in regards to the subject matter covered. It is given with the understanding that neither the host, the publisher, or the guests are rendering legal, accounting, clinical, or any other professional information. If you want a professional, you should find one.